A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.6. Last time, we concluded on the native impact of Khrushchev's secret speech. We also made some important observations on how exactly dissent was to be levelled at the Soviet regime, and why the legacy of Stalinism was critical to the future of the USSR, even while its means were to be heavily criticised. As we'll see in the next few episodes, the Soviet leadership underestimated the impact the speech would have on the outlying satellites. In two of our major case studies, Poland and Hungary, Khrushchev failed to anticipate the wave of agitation which accompanied his speech. After seeing Stalinism called into question publicly, technically at least, citizens in these beleaguered vassals couldn't help but call the entire rotten Soviet Union into question as well. The actions and motivations of these average citizens would characterise the year 1956 as one of both bravery and of tragedy, of inspiration and crushed dreams. As an event criminally underrepresented in the history podcast land, I hope to bring its key characters and events to you now as we delve into the first case, the Poles. If you're ready then, I'll now take you to early March 1956, where a key Polish official was sent over the edge. Slavomir Ravich was, or quite possibly was not, responsible for one of the most incredible stories to come out of the Cold War. In 1956, with the aid of a British ghostwriter, Ravich penned The Long Walk, which was adapted by director Peter Weir and became the film The Way Back, starring, among others, Colin Farrell and Saoirse Ronan. The tale centres on the extraordinary experience of a Polish prisoner of a Soviet gulag, who escaped from Siberia and made the beyond arduous journey all the way to Calcutta in British India in the early 1940s. The controversy surrounding this story to this day revolves around the question of whether Slavomir Ravich was the gulag escapee he claims to have been, or whether he claimed someone else's story as his own. Either way, evidence exists to this day that three emaciated, exhausted prisoners managed to reach a British patrol in Calcutta in 1942, corroborating at least a portion of Ravitch's story, even if we'll never know for sure whether it was he who made the journey, or some other unfortunate Pole trapped by the terrible circumstances in which he lived. 
We're not going to delve into these controversies, but as someone who watched The Way Back when it was released all the way back in 2010, I find it especially fascinating that this film has its roots in the chaotic year of 1956. It was on the 25th of April of 1956 that Harper and Bros, the prestigious New York publishing house, released The Long Walk to the English-speaking world. The book caused an almost immediate storm, not least because the book was and remains an utterly gripping read. In the atmosphere of post-secret speech, though, it was Ravitch's depictions of life in a Soviet gulag that really grinded the gears of Moscow's leadership and ignited the imaginations of those in the West. One excerpt of the book in particular recalls how Soviet authorities wrested a confession from Ravitch for committing the crimes they accused him of. Having been arrested in November 1939 as Poland was devoured by the twin evils of Nazism and Communism, Ravitch was torn from his family and subjected to horrific punishments. Molten tar was poured on his hand at one point, and during another torture session, Soviet administrators took it in turns to tap the same place on his forehead every two seconds for two full days. These revelations of life under Stalin's monstrous police state were awful enough, but it was when Ravitch arrived in the Gulag in furthest Siberia that the details really accumulated. Ravitch described how he was forced to spend six months in the so-called Kishka, translated as the intestine or the gut, which he described as a chimney-like cell into which one stepped down about a foot below the level of the corridor outside. Inside a man could stand and no more. The walls pressed around like a stone coffin. Twenty feet above was the diffused light from some small out-of-sight window. We excreted, standing up and stood in our own filth. The Kishka was never cleaned. The publication of The Long Walk was as timely for the West as it was inopportune for Khrushchev. It shortly became one of the year's best sellers and also acquired a favourable reputation among reviewers, such as the Manchester Guardian, whose reviewer noted that I have read no modern tale of adventure that can compare with this, either for excitement or for the inspiration of its dogged heroism. Yet, Ravitch's book wasn't just a great read for those curious about life across the Iron Curtain. It was, as we have gathered, an immensely well-timed publication. As the historian Simon Hall noted, Its meditation on the horrors of Stalinist oppression and emphasis on one man's innate yearning for freedom gave it a powerful contemporary resonance particularly in light of developments in Eastern Europe, where, in the aftermath of Khrushchev's secret speech, an oppressed citizenry sought to push back against the constraints on their own liberty. Indeed, the problems which the Long Walk raised and led it to be predictably banned can be summarised by the observations made by Alan Dulles, the director of the CIA, who told President Eisenhower during a meeting of the National Security Council that Khrushchev's speech raised certain unanswerable questions not just in the Soviet Union, but in satellite states. While one could ask how the Poles could possibly cooperate with Moscow after the ordeals recalled by Ravitch, Dulles also asked, What would the leadership in the satellite states do now? Adding that, These men were almost all the creatures of Stalin. Indeed, Dulles's observation proved to be an apt one. The creatures of Stalin didn't just owe their position to that late first secretary, they also owed their policies, ideology, iron grip on power, focus on industrialization, nationalism, central planning, censorship, attacks on the church, on dissidents at all levels, 
and even the creation of their own personality cults to Stalin. In fact, it was the two states most affected by the secret speech, Poland and Hungary, that their own national cult of personality was the most developed. One such personality was Boleslav Beirut, who had travelled to Moscow to hear the 20th Party Congress, but it was laid low with pneumonia during it. It was perhaps just as well that Beirut had been unable to attend the closed session to hear the secret speech. Judging by his reaction while in his hospital bed, it would have caused quite a scene. Historians note Beirut being quite literally finished off by the de-Stalinization speech as it caused the Polish dictator to suffer a heart attack from which he did not recover. Beirut, one of the Soviet bloc's little Stalins, had monopolised and exerted an iron-fisted rule over Poland for years. His successor was to be Edward Ockab, a more liberally-minded figure who happened to believe that the best medicine for Polish communism was to apply the cleansing balm of the secret speech in a mass campaign. From the 21st of March 1956, thousands of meetings of the Polish United Workers' Party ensured that the distribution of the speech took place. Alkab's reason for adhering to this distribution was somewhat curious. While he described the speech's contents as like getting hit over the head with a hammer, he believed that the Polish party had no right to conceal what had happened at the 20th Party Congress or to pass over Stalin's crimes in a deathly silence. Ockham thought it better to tell the bitter truth the way we saw it and to hope that afterwards the party, the people and the state would emerge as one into clear waters. The Polish Communist Party's policy of shooting themselves in the foot thus began in earnest, barely a month after Khrushchev had first performed the secret speech. Within less than a month, discussion of the speech led to criticism of the Stalinist method, which in turn led to a criticism of the little Stalins like Beirut, and finally, a criticism of Soviet rule in Polish political life. The outburst, which Khrushchev had feared and hoped to control over a few months in the Soviet Union, escaped its Pandora's box in only five days. By the 26th of March, at the Szechen Technical University, Party activists were demanding a guarantee against a reversion to Stalinist methods, accompanied by a criticism of the heavy Soviet control over Polish institutions like the Polish army, which was controlled by a Soviet citizen and marshal, Konstantin Rokozowski, who hadn't an ounce of Polish blood in him. Frustrated debate escalated to the point that those present began questioning the very legitimacy of the Polish Communist Party. After all, if Stalin was responsible for installing that party in the first place, and he was now being actively discredited, what other outcome could the people turn to? At a meeting in the Gdansk shipyard, workers poured scorn on Khrushchev's explanation for his own innocence and the idea that Stalin had acted alone. How was he able to decide everything? the workers asked. Where were the other members of the Politburo? These were valid questions, and the shipyard workers in Gdansk were far from the only ones to ask them. Nationalism was increasingly being waved as a warning flag as well, another predictable outcome of the questioning of Soviet legitimacy. If the Soviet-sponsored communist movements were actively questioned, how could it not follow that the Soviet right to effectively rule Poland would not be questioned also? Alarmed by the scale of the dissent in Poland by late March, the Central Committee restricted distribution of the speech in Poland to only the highest-level party functionaries. By then, though, it was too late. Poles took immense risks to copy and distribute the speech themselves, 
and in many ways the restriction backfired, as they attached to their copies postscripts or front covers decrying not just Stalin, but also the Soviet Union itself. Only through sheer brutality and repression had Joseph Stalin been able to engineer the Soviet takeover of Poland. We are often reminded of the shamefully cynical image of Red Army soldiers pausing on the Vistula as the Polish Home Army first beat back and then were brutally liquidated by the Nazis in autumn 1944. What followed was nothing short of national genocide, as Hitler seemed to believe that by systematically dynamiting over 80% of Warsaw, he could erase Polish civilization from the map of Europe. Much like he had failed everywhere though, Hitler failed to remove Polish national consciousness from that long-suffering crossroads of Europe. What followed the defeat of the Polish Home Guard was the defeat of the Nazis, and then the defeat of Polish national ambitions. By the time Stalin met with Roosevelt and Churchill at Yalta, Polish communism had already been filled with the necessary Stalinist muscle required to effectively take over Poland. Through the late 1940s, the grim and bitter experience of Polish repression continued, as Soviet-sponsored Polish independence and brotherhood proved as empty as goals as pledges given by Stalin to Churchill to commit to the holding of democratic elections in the country. Poland was to be neutered like never before, its identity attacked, its Catholic Church in particular brought low, and its people taught to think and feel like their Soviet neighbours. Anything less was a deviation, but even then Stalin wasn't happy. Few examples of Stalin's lack of communist zeal and his preference for power exist on a more blatant scale than the First Secretary's systematic elimination of the native Polish Communist Party membership in the late 1930s. After that, it was necessary for Stalin to create a Polish party for himself, since he had murdered the Polish Communist Party that was already there, and this he did by co-opting the supposedly still-living membership and moulding it with the newly created grouping to create a united workers' party. Knowing what I know of the Polish national experience in the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries, remember, Poland is not yet lost, is on the way in May and and it will cover the 18th century experience of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, I still have to maintain that the 20th century, in spite of the fleeting 20-year exercise in Polish autonomy in between the wars, remains the worst century of Polish life. What was especially galling for the Poles was a sense of abandonment by the West. Poland, after all, had been the starting point of the war, when in September 1939 the scales fell from everyone's eyes and Nazi Germany unleashed the Second World War upon the world. Considering this, and considering the service which countless thousands of Polish expats gave to the Allies, it was above the imagination of many to conceive of a post-war arrangement which didn't right the wrongs of the period 1939-45. to The massive population transfers and redefinition of East Central Europe from 1945 flew in the face of Polish national history as much as German national history, as hundreds of thousands of Poles left regions which had been Polish-speaking since the dawn of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Moscow essentially stole Polish-Ukraine from Warsaw and stole large portions of East Prussia and Germany and gave them to Poland to make up the difference. As one Pole put it, The territory of Western Ukraine will not be kept by the Soviet Union. It was and will be Polish territory. America will never let the Soviet Union do that because at the beginning of the war she declared that Poland would be the same as it was until 1939, and therefore, it is not worth moving to Soviet Poland. 
Yet, for those Poles cynical or realistic enough to understand what was happening when the Red Army held back from helping the Polish Home Army in autumn 1944, the future looked bleak indeed. Poland, a country rich in history, culture, democratic traditions and noble institutions, was destined to become a satellite just like its other neighbours, just as the Tsars had done before when Russia had cooperated with its rivals to annex Poland for good in 1795. Here, 150 years later, was another annexation taking place, as Russia swallowed up its weaker, smaller Polish neighbour once again. Boleslav Beirut's death came at precisely the wrong time for Soviet-controlled Poland, since Moscow urgently needed an experienced leader to maintain the iron grip on the troublesome people in the aftermath of the secret speech's fallout. With Beirut gone and his replacement handing out the speech to all that would listen, the regime appeared weaker to many Poles than it had done since its establishment a decade before. In addition, this perceived weakness came just at the point when it was inferred that Moscow would go easier on displays of legitimate criticism and dissent. There was of course a fine line between what Moscow viewed as legitimate and what Poles viewed as necessary for their independence, but considering the difficult history of Russo-Polish relations, this is hardly surprising. One of the largest displays of Polish revulsion towards the Soviet regime had actually come in 1949, when in Lublin's cathedral, a nun noticed a change in the Virgin Mary's face, as her image appeared to be weeping. Reporting this miracle to a priest, word soon spread throughout the country. Soon the cathedral couldn't close its doors with all the people present, and before a week had passed, hundreds of thousands of Poles travelled to Lublin to see for themselves what was going on. Such a fact is remarkable when we consider that news effectively travelled by word of mouth, since the Soviet media was hardly about to report on religious or spiritual developments in the country. In their effort to anticipate the response, Soviet authorities prevented people entering the city unless they had official business, and the Lublin train station was effectively closed. But still, the Poles came to see the miracle of their revered icon. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One eyewitness captured the atmosphere remarkably well. He noted, It was in July 1949, 
Five of us went on foot since they had already stopped selling tickets for the train to Lublin. When we got to the cathedral, we stayed there all night and in the morning there were already thousands of people and at about seven they began standing in a queue waiting for the cathedral doors to open. After some time a policeman came and took away the priest but still people waited longer. And then they came again and took the keys to the cathedral and still people waited. And then a bishop came and told people to go home because the cathedral was not opening. So then people were really shocked and sang and prayed and that went on until afternoon when I went to the side entrance of the cathedral and at first I didn't understand what was happening. And then I saw that they were breaking down the doors and I am helping all of a sudden and people are singing and praying and shouting, don't close out the church. Indeed, if we're going to take our story way, way back to the 17th century, one needs only to recall the experiences of the Poles during the Swedish deluge to note the affinity that the Poles had with the person of Mary and the importance which Catholicism held for the vast majority of its population. During the dark times of that conflict in the 1650s, King John Casimir of Poland had literally pledged himself to the Virgin Mary amidst an outpouring of national and spiritual enthusiasm. While the enemy was in this case the Swedes, the end result would be roughly the same in 1949 as it had been for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in 1656. The church maintained a strong cultural and spiritual monopoly upon the populace, a fact which was tacitly admitted by one communist figure in a memo to Boleslav Beirut in 1950 when it was written that the church is a great obstacle to us because in it are concentrated the philosophical basis of ideological reaction, which it ceaselessly relays to the masses. In the popular consciousness, it is the bulwark of Polish tradition and culture, the most complete expression of Polishness. This traditional understanding of patriotism is the greatest strength of the church, even stronger and more powerful than the magic of ritual. The church is the natural source of opposition, both ideological and philosophical. While the outpouring of 1949 was put down and suppressed by the predictable combination of brutality and propaganda, the lessons were not properly learned by the authorities. It is a bizarre fact that in a country like Poland, the leader of the Communist Party was more fervent than any of his peers across the bloc in believing in the necessity of spreading the word of the secret speech, in spite of the damage it could do. By the time Moscow sought to implement damage control, the message of what Khrushchev had said had already been absorbed. In the decades since 1945, Poland had been ruled by a highly visible privileged class, the bureaucracy of the party which enjoyed every benefit over their countrymen and who received regular incentives to maintain the gravy train at the expense of those less willing to sell their souls. One party figure, Maria Herzevich, noted with a disarming honesty what it was that compelled her to stick to the party line. She said, there was the feeling of belonging to the elite, the taste of power, the joy of participation in a chosen group that was arbitrarily reshaping society, the privilege of prying into other people's lives, the exhilarating experience of acting beyond the law and beyond the social rules that limited the freedom of ordinary citizens. In spring 1956, all these privileges so valued by this class of Poles would be turned against them. British diplomats called it a orgy of public criticism, but we can see it as the logical reaction to ten years of Soviet occupation, five years of genocide, devastation and misery before that. 
So incendiary were the Polish newspapers that Czech and Hungarian leaders refused to allow them to be distributed in their states. The Polish writers seemed totally unwilling to hold anything back. They seemed to believe that the secret speech on the death of the hated Beirut had given them license to say what they had wanted to say for years. Articles appeared in Polish periodicals denouncing the distortions of Stalinism and describing how its tenants had demoralised and humiliated the people. For the first time, Poles openly discussed the fate of their Home Guard army, which had led the Warsaw Uprising in autumn 1944 and paid the ultimate price. Also discussed was the liquidated native Polish Communist Party, which Stalin had seen fit to destroy during his purges of the late 1930s as he created a Stalinist-sponsored Communist Party in Poland, which he could control. As spring 1956 progressed, it seemed that Edward Ockab, Beirut's successor, had created a monster. Poles were demanding a greater say in how the state was run, and for sweeping reforms in the economic and political spheres to be brought in. In an edition of Po Prostu, roughly translated as Frankly Speaking, a regular periodical in Poland, on the 15th of April it was argued that the people were entitled to a greater role in running the Polish state. The dictatorship of the proletariat, its editor Jerzy Urban complained, does not exist when it is ruled by professional functionaries in the name of the proletariat. The people's democracy does not exist without actual rule by the people. During May Day parades at Lodz, students held banners which read Down with despots and Down with tyrants. During Krakow's annual student festival later in the month, chaos ensued as students rampaged through the streets without concern for their safety, smashing windows, spraying political graffiti and demanding changes to the constitution for the sake of democratic freedoms. Cultural figures like the theatre critic Jan Kott captured the style of Soviet dogma when he exclaimed, Whenever facts stood in the way, the facts were changed. If genuine heroes were obstacles, they evaporated. Others accused the party of warping and deadening Polish art and culture by running everything through the communist doctrine first. In Warsaw's secret police HQ, worrying reports were filtering in that, in this mood, informants were no longer cooperating and that some Poles were openly declaring their hostility towards the Moscow regime. To head off the crisis, noted the historian Donald Pinkos, the Polish government even proclaimed an amnesty for individuals who had been unlawfully arrested and imprisoned. Soon after, some 36,000 individuals were released. Yet, this act of amnesty only confirmed the theory of many Poles that the Soviet-sponsored government in Poland was weak and that they could not stop them in their quest. Even in the industrial sphere, the crisis was deepening. Food and coal shortages were coupled with high work quotas and general dissatisfaction to produce a situation that was approaching a fever pitch by June 1956. Discontent was coupled with the unfair state of affairs in the country. Contrary to the communist message, society was not equal. The aforementioned Soviet-sponsored bureaucrats enjoyed privileges and perks far out of the bounds of most Poles. Capturing the mood, Poprostu published an article describing a scene where a woman, dressed in a mink coat, exited a military vehicle to purchase goods from a shop which was filled with meat and potatoes. Only she was allowed into these so-called yellow curtain stores, reserved exclusively for those that served the Soviet regime. Across the street from this woman's easy shopping experience, 
impoverished pulls queued outside a shop which had next to nothing on its shelves. The article, intended to be satire, was tragically close to the experience of most Poles. The Soviets had created classes of haves and have-nots in complete defiance of genuine communist doctrine. And to a great number of Poles, it was genuine Polish communism that they were after, rather than a necessarily democratic or completely independent Poland. Exceptions to this of course existed, but to realistic Polish citizens, they believed it wasn't too much to ask the Soviet authorities to respect Polish rights and privileges, and to actually treat Poland fairly, rather than as a colony from which everything useful could be squeezed. Understanding what the majority of Poles wanted helps to explain why the people began to demand a change in their communist leadership, rather than a change in government, per se. The person they landed upon to lead this new phase of Polish society was the formal general secretary of the Polish Communist Party, Vladislav Gomulka. Gomulka had been removed as party head in the past for the usual excuse. He hadn't been Stalinist enough for Stalin's tastes, and while he had been lucky to retain his life, he had been imprisoned and had only been released in late 1954. Gomulka, rightly or wrongly, was viewed as a national communist leader, insofar as he wouldn't necessarily tow Moscow's line on every occasion, and he would look out for Polish interests above all. In the complicated lexicon of communist rhetoric, it was enough for many Poles to have a candidate which they could believe would look after Poland and look after them. Soon enough, this quest for Gomulka became a rallying cry. The nation does not want Bolshevism. It does not want the Sovietization of Poland. We want to walk on our own Polish road. Comrade Vladislav Gomulka must be rehabilitated and paid the honour and respect he is owed. Down with Bolshevism and Moscow. Long live an independent and truly people's Poland. Such a rallying cry, written in an editorial for the People's Tribune, captured the mood of the time. As the Soviet government moved lethargically to quash the dissent, matters came to a head in late June. In Poznan, on the 28th of June, the workers in the largest and oldest factory in the city refused to work and formed up for a protest march outside the factory gates before then moving off towards the city centre. Along the way, they were joined by other employees of the city's varied factories and offices. At this early stage of the protest, it was the economic demands that dominated the demonstrators' cries. Higher wages and lower prices, human living conditions, and the abolition of production norms were all important points. Protesters shouted, We are hungry, we want bread, down with the exploitation of workers, down with the bloodsuckers, and down with the red bourgeoisie. If the protests began in the given factory and were in the first place based on economic demands, as more people joined the throng of workers, the demands then grew. Down with the party, down with the Bolsheviks, down with the communists, and we demand free elections under United Nations control. That escalated quickly. These were all demands heard from the people, as dissent and discontent on such a scale not seen in a decade was put on full view. The very fact that workers played such a key role in the riots exposed as a lie the oft-parroted claim that the Communist Party was there for the workers, above all. It was the workers who were the most upset, the most exhausted, the most underpaid and the most impoverished. Attacks were launched on the party's HQ as flags and portraits were torn down. True to the earlier 1949 protest, the people moved past churches and received the blessing from the priests that were present. We want God, and we want religion in schools, were heard from the crowds, as nothing seemed to calm their wrath. 
Poznan seemed for a time as though it intended to detach itself from the communist utopia, which had the rest of the country in its iron vice. National symbols were present from the very outset of the Poznan events, constituting the core of the mass language. Demonstrators sang the national anthem and other patriotic songs and shouted, We want an independent Poland! National feelings revealed an anti-Russian and anti-Soviet edge absent from previous protests. The street of the town resounded to calls of Russians go home, Muscovites go home, down with the Russians, Ruskies get out of our town. Over the course of a few months, the reaction to the secret speech had escalated from feelings of discontent and despair at the unfairness of the regime and the falsehoods of the Soviet message to feelings very close to nationalistic revolt. Of course, it shouldn't surprise you to know. Poznan was crushed with predictable brutality. 70 people were killed, 600 wounded and over 200 arrested, but the message had been sent. Over the next few weeks, the issue was debated at several high-level meetings, with one name still on the tip of everyone's tongue, Vladislav Gomolka. It remained to be seen exactly how Moscow would respond. Would it bow to the demands or would Khrushchev react in such a manner that only pushed the Poles over the edge? Next time, we'll see how Moscow responded to the Polish situation, with results that may well surprise you. Until then, my name is Zach, and this has been the sixth episode of 1956. Thanks for listening, you lovely patron, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.